This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. We're sponsored by Neomodern.com, bringing concierge photo printing and framing to everyone with a smartphone. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neomodern, and grumpy old man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Rubin. How you doing? Doing well this morning. How are you? I'm good. I haven't seen you in, well, I've seen you in a little bit. I guess it's kind of... That'd be sort of strange to pretend like I've just been sitting here with you for a while. It's true. I've been on the road up until this morning. So. <laughs> Did I tell you? So um, we are, we've just about hit our 24,000th download of wow. the podcast, which That's I'm amazing. very excited. I, I appreciate every episode seems to grow in our audience and, um, and we're blessed with like awesome people who join us. I'm and, pretty excited about today. So today's great. So today um, uh, we have with us da- the, the amazing photojournalist, David Burnett. David, this is Suzanne. You guys there? Hey, Suzanne. Hi, David. Pleasure to meet you. And it's true. I haven't, I haven't been sitting next to you for a while. So, <laughs> I will. so, so the, the thrill is still very visceral at this point. It's right? Brand new. All, it's brand new all over again. <laughs> and, and where are you today, David? I'm in Newburgh, New York, which is just about an hour up the Hudson River from New York uh, City and a historically very important place in the American Revolution. Oh, and um, I've heard there. It was where basically it's where George Washington sat the revolution out and the icky parts and then, you know, went on from there. But uh, it's uh, in a beautiful kind of neo summer day, pretending that, you know, we sort of blew through the solstice. (laughs) And um, I went out last night just, uh, you know, it's like, get me started and it's trouble. But there was (laughs) I was going out to pick up uh, some uh, takeaway dinner and. Just as the sun was creeping down, uh, it was about 7.45 or something, maybe 8 o'clock. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Manhattan Henge. No. Which mm-hmm. is, so it's the, those days alignment? in the summer, and I, there must be something in the winter too, when the sun, uh, as it just as it gets ready to set, is perfectly lined up with the east-west streets in New York City. And so it brings out thousands of people, both tourists and native, with with uh, cameras and and camera phones. Last year, on uh, 57th and Third Avenue, there was this whole phalanx of people stopping traffic to just see this giant red ball of the sun looking west. So I actually thought last night, seeing it was the solstice, maybe that would be it. But I was informed by my friends who keep track of these things that it's not for another couple of weeks but it's uh you know new york is there's always something to look at in new york which i guess you could say even for pocatello or st george but right i mean new york there's always something isn't the gift of being a photographer being able to see something amazing wherever you are like you don't really need to be at the north pole or at manhattan henge or whatever you'd like you'll see no anywhere and and in fact that's what creates for those who are attached to the lives of photographers wandering photographers uh, life can be a hell for them and pretty much everybody i know who's in in long time in the photo business has got stories 
that relate to walking with one or more people that you're probably blood related to and the conversation start with can't we just go someplace right. once <laughs> stop exactly. stop and of course the answer is no right. it's like, <laughs> like oh my you god have to ask. can you see the way look at the way that shadow is like in 20 minutes it's going to be so awesome when that shadow moves across the lincoln continental it's like 20 minutes i mean that's the longest 20 minutes in history so. i'm so comforted to hear you say that i you know every, every i feel like if my kids look at me one more time with an eye roll yeah. of like oh please dad don't shoot that don't stop. no i know it's please the, don't it's stop. the that guy oh that guy look yes <laughs> So, David, I'm getting the impression you've been kind of a, a photographer all of your life. You've had a very prolific career, but um, when did you start taking pictures? I, in uh, sophomore year of high school, so I would have been, I think, just turning 15 or 16. And I had my mother, who was a, a journalism major at Stanford in the late 30s, was uh, always sort of haranguing me in a nice motherly haranguing way but it was like you know you're going to need some extracurricular activities and of course neither of us could e even spell extracurricular but we knew what it meant <laughs> that uh you know you need some extracurricular activities if you're going to get into a good college so at some point it, it came upon me that maybe the yearbook would be a fun place to work and she had actually worked uh, on the both the Daily and I think the Stanford Quad, which was the yearbook back in the 30s. And so I signed up for it, and on the application you had four options of choice of service. It was uh, business, literary, art, or photo. And the first three, just nothing zinged, and I thought, well, photo, let's try it. <laughs> and only two or three of us had even applied, so we were all... By the next <laughs> September, we were on. The, we were the new photo staff, and Excellent. and Mr. Blackham, who was a math teacher and also in charge of the photo uh, department for in the in the wet lab we had. We had a beautiful Omega enlarger and mm -hmm. a nice, had one of those. Uh, a proper sink with trays and stuff. And I, you know, I can remember being in there the first day that. Um, you know, probably in the middle of September, the following uh, autumn when school started. And he had taken pictures of the French club or something and was projecting them through the enlarger onto this piece of paper and then watching as the piece of paper went into the deck tall and became a photograph. And, and everybody that's kind of of my generation and my ilk who started in the wet darkroom I think we were all branded by the, the magic quality of watching a print develop mm -hmm. in, the, in the developer, that it was just as cool as it is to see a really amazing print come being uh, burped out of an Epson or Canon <laughs> printer. And that is pretty cool to just yeah. watch a print get born. But it's nothing like being in the dark room and the, seeing the alchemy of of uh, you know, 150 years of people putting all these smelly chemicals together and then taking a white piece of paper and making an image with it. Do you remember that was the... just? Oh, go ahead. Anyway, that was that was it, and I was hooked. And I've been a photographer ever since that first month of my <laughs> junior year in high school. I, I love it. Do you remember the first picture that you took that you were watching develop that really? stuck with you that you're just like whether this was from your book or years after where you're just like wow, well i tell I, you there's one good i was just looking at it the other day and it wasn't 
it was probably not even the first year. It was probably by senior year. I was like BMOC or, you know, big <laughs> photographer on campus. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, like I knew how to develop film. I knew how to make prints and stuff like that. And, and one Sunday uh, evening, uh, we kind of lived out. I grew up in Salt Lake City. And we kind of in those days lived out in what was the boonies out in the southeast uh, part of the valley and my cousin Howard lived in the city and he'd come out and spent the weekend with us and I had to drive him back home Sunday around I don't know six o'clock or something after we had dinner and I went to uh, I went to uh, uh, you know we're driving in the car and we're looking down on this the road that goes right on the base of the mountain and so you're kind of looking down into the valley and during this unbelievable thunderstorm and lightning is everywhere. And mm-hmm. and I remember pulling the car over and just saying, well, Howie, you got to wait a little while. This is really too amazing. So I had my <laughs> Yashica mat camera, which I actually had in the car with a roll of Tri-X and my old, my crappy old flip lock tripod. And I put the camera up. And there were the, and I just kind of would aim it in a direction and put it on focus on infinity and probably on about f sixteen. Mm-hmm. But I was brainy enough at age sixteen to know that if I put the put it on bulb and I uh, I had a cable release even. I mean, I was wow, like really can't to believe how together that yeah. was. Yeah. And I put it on bulb and I would open the shutter and put my hand in front of the lens so that nothing would get through. And then when there would be a flash of lightning. I'd move my hand away, you know, and it, of course, I was gifted with the fact that my hand was faster than the speed of light, which helped. <laughs> That's useful in your profession. But yeah. I would, it's, I think every photographer needs to have at least one hand really fast <laughs> like that. And I just cover, you know, I would do these like maybe one or two minute exposures. And the only time I really let any light in was when I could see there was lightning. So I just moved my hand and put it back in there and then move my hand and cover it up. And so it was like a using my hand as, as essentially as the shutter and making a multiple exposure picture. So, and it was really an amazing lightning storm. So I, I was in those days, I was already working for the, a local weekly paper. That was one thing I decided I didn't want to just put my pictures in a drawer. I loved the idea. Of, and I had been working for this little weekly paper selling him pictures for $3 each. And then it was bought by these two brothers who turned out to be my mom's cousins. (laughs) And so I was like, I was in because they, I'm sure they knew that they could, they could pay somebody in the family 25 cents an hour less than they'd have to pay somebody who that was from the outside. So I had this great job for like a buck 50 an hour. And I went in the next morning, developed the film, and made an 11 by 14 print, which of course in those days seemed like a gigantic print, yeah. of this incredible lightning thing. And I went up and just tossed it like uh, Clark Kent walking into Perry White's office and just sort of <laughs> tossed this print onto his desk, uh, the editor's desk. And he actually said, let's stop the presses. I mean, that's the only time that ever happened. Wow. And they, and they <laughs> dropped it in. It was, they were just starting to do the run for that week, and they dropped it in about six inches deep all the way across page one. And it was like, that was pretty cool. That was like the entire action of seeing, shooting, processing, printing, yeah. um, editing, uh, impressing editor, and go right to direct to 
publishing in like 24 hours. So that was pretty sweet. And I've lived most of my life in the world of magazines, weekly or monthly magazines. So you never had anything happen that fast. I mean, I that, that's I really the the joy of newspapers, I guess. Is I don't, don't want to make around. you feel old or anything, but really, I grew up with your... <laughs> the Time Magazine work was... Like I was in high school, and your name was synonymous with like the coolest pictures in time. So, wow, that's cool. That's very nice to hear. It's just what a uh, I don't know. That's cool. It, 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 I'm honored to to have such a distinguished photojournalist with us. Um, you, you covered presidents and wars, and you've been everywhere. Um, I don't know, you, but only for an hour. That was but only my for- favorite. <laughs> my favorite article that was ever done about me was an American photo about. Oh, my God, it's like 20. I mean, it's like this is the crazy thing. Like everything that seems like it was about three years ago is actually 20 years ago. (laughs) And the stuff that seems like it was seven or eight years ago is like 32 years ago. And I have to really watch it when I'm having dinner with anybody of a younger generation. And I have to, you know, usually preface dinner by like, listen, you'll just excuse us in advance if we say stuff like, and I remember 42 years ago, <laughs> the Iranian Revolution. It's just what we do, and it's and it freaks me out a little bit because I can't imagine, like, this week, 50 years ago, this month, the uh, the Apollo uh, 11, 50 years. I mean, I can't wow. even imagine that I remember something 50 years ago, let alone have pictures of it. But, Did you shoot you know, those right, at the time? It's, it's Sorry? Were you shooting? Um, I was actually. I had just moved. I had, I had been asked to go to Miami for Time Magazine in the spring of 1969. I graduated from college in 68. I did the obligatory three month tour around Europe and uh, came home. And I had had a summer job with Time Magazine between junior and senior year, what now would be called an internship, but they didn't they didn't have such fancy names for it then. Yeah. But I worked in Washington and New York, and I had 11 pictures published in the magazine when I was wow. I was still too young to go and have a drink with all the drinking photographers, which uh-huh. was most of them. Um, I mean, they would have like literally three martinis for lunch, and That's where their that idea of the, came from. The, yeah. Well, their idea of the salad bar was the olives and the martini. <laughs> that was that was the veggie portion of the program, and I, you know, I was even I was twenty. I was too young to go have a drink, but it was a great ex- learning experience. And I was very bonded to Time Magazine. So, in early '69, uh, they said, "Well, you want to go to Miami? Uh, there's nobody really working in that bureau." So I moved to Miami, and right after that was the first my first space launch, which was Apollo 10, which was in um, May of 69. And two months later, they turned around another Saturn V and launched Apollo 11. I mean, you think about even just dragging a Saturn V from the assembly building out to the out to the pad. Yeah, they move very slowly. Let alone launching one two months later. It's just unheard of turnaround times. They just wanted to get it done before the end of the decade, talk, and it was, it was that project. was pretty fantastic. You're doing a, a project now for the 50th anniversary. What can, what does that entail? Well, I just have pretty much finished since we've got about I think everybody. Well, there's a couple of astronauts still I would love to do, but just published yesterday in the Washington Post a big special section on Apollo 11 and. 50 years after going to the moon. And they've done these wonderful 
interviews with all uh, with not just the Apollo astronauts, but and, and a lot of the shuttle astronauts and and Soviet cosmonauts and the one Afghan, you know, the Afghanistan. There was one one of the guys on the space shuttle, I think, was from Afghanistan. So they've done this great thing about impressions from what it's like in space. And I I had this project where I was trying to photograph all of the uh, uh, currently uh, alive and active Apollo astronauts, some of whom are still very active, and a few of whom are kind of like, well, they're not that they're not that accessible anymore. They're you know right. they're a little older. So many of them were, you know, if you think about it, they're born in 1930 uh, or a couple of years before or after that. So they're all they're a little bit younger than the World War II vets, but not very much. Mm-hmm. And so they're 89, 90, 93, 95. So, you know, uh, I mean, to wow. describe it fairly, I would say some of them could be a little crotchety. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, uh, but I was doing these little hits wherever I could get them. And God, they're just, they remain one of the really great groups of people. You know, they're still, I think in their just like I was talking about, I can't believe it's 50 years. I'm sure that's how they feel. They were test pilots. They were jet jockeys. And, you know, I'm sure every one of them could hop behind just about any airplane you could throw at them and they could fly you wherever you needed to go without any uh, incident. And I, uh, but I've caught up with about a dozen of them this year. And I have over the years done a number of the others. And they did this big, beautiful portfolio of of astronauts in the Washington Post yesterday's it went live on the on the web uh, Wednesday night and then Friday it was printed and it's so gratifying first of all to see that a newspaper will do a big section like this uh, it's it's just it's fabulous and if you're you know if you're anywhere near uh, remembering like if you're 60 years old and you were 10 years old when they landed on the moon and a month later, there was Woodstock. So there were all these things from that summer of '69 that you might remember. Um, it's so it's so amazing to uh, to see that these guys are still still there. And even the, as they've become a little like a couple of them, physically very uh, infirm and kind of challenged. But when you talk to them, they're still like flying high. They're still able to talk about. You know, one of one of them, General um, Tom Stafford, who was on Apollo 10. He was, I think, the commander of Apollo 10, which was the this was the one that right before 11, and they went out to the moon and looped around and orbited the moon, and then they came back to the uh, right. They could see came, it. Came back to the Earth. <clears throat> they didn't land, and there was this hilarious thing I just read this week that was um, that they wanted to make sure. They didn't, uh, like, they only gave them enough fuel to do the go around the moon and come back. Not enough so that if they wanted to, like, decided they wanted to land there, that they could do it. Because (laughs) they're thinking, you know, even though it wasn't even remotely in the program for them to land on the moon, hey, these astronauts, you can't trust them as far as you can throw them, you know. (laughs) They may just decide to go down and land on the moon and totally screw everything up. Is there, is there a place to was, see these pictures? Was, uh, well, if you go to WashingtonPost.com, there is a, uh, um, and just type in, I think if you just type in Apollo 11, you'll see the stuff. And it's are, really. 
Are they going to be on display? Are you printing them and showing them anywhere? Well, the uh, the see this, then there's this whole other set of pictures that I shot in 1969 while I was this kid in Florida. Well, I went up to the Cape for Apollo 10, which was in May, and then when it came to Ju- uh, July for 11, I said to my editor. Uh, what if I just go photograph the people who are coming to see the launch? And it was hundreds of thousands of people. If you see this new documentary out, which is called Apollo 11, mm-hmm. you'll see uh, there are some amazing aerial uh, shots of uh, the people lined up along the banks of the Indian River over in Titusville, about mm-hmm. eight miles away from the pad. And people just camped out there for a couple of days leading up to the launch because everybody wanted their kids to see in person to watch this thing and it was in the hundreds of thousands of people came and it was really a trip i mean there was the night before the launch there was a square dance at the mall and i went to that and then people are (laughs) you know all camped out sleeping on the grass uh entrepreneurial kids are selling moon maps (laughs) <laughs> and like the, an official an official moon map and it's official because i say it is i mean it's that kind of thing and anyway those cramped. pictures which kind of sat around for 40 years in an envelope and then i discovered them 10 years ago about the time of the 40th anniversary um those pictures are going to be opening at an exhibition at the leica gallery in san francisco on july 11th and run through I think September at the Leica Gallery San Francisco. That's great. And then in and I'm going to get this wrong, but the Leica Gallery in Washington DC is going to be uh doing them in uh I think late September or is it October? I think it's late September at the Leica Gallery in Washington DC and that'll be at the anniversary of the 60th anniversary of the founding of NASA. Wow. which was, you know, the American Space Agency. So it's been really fun on July 5th, 16th, sorry, which is the anniversary date of the Apollo launch. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a presentation in Seattle at the Museum of Flight. And I'm showing those pictures, plus all, all the uh, portraits I've done of the uh, astronauts. Are you still and, get around? Uh, yeah. Well, it's still, and it's just, this is like the year to do it. You know, there have been a couple of the, couple of the astronauts were one guy in particular i don't have to name names one guy in particular is kind of sworn off doing any more press and i couldn't really figure out what the deal was oh it sounds like there must have been at some point one article that he didn't like and he thought was bs and so he's not doing any more and i ran into him i was out at the tom stafford uh, Air and Space Museum in Weatherford, Oklahoma, this little town west of Oklahoma City, about an hour out in the middle of kind of the tornado plains of Oklahoma. And they've this is where Tom Stafford grew up. And it is the coolest little museum. I mean, it's just really fantastic. It's one of those things right on Route 66 if you're doing the old Route 66 run. And, um, and uh, they had uh, an evening... Uh, dedicated to the astronauts, and a bunch of them came for, uh, this was middle of May, they came to the museum, and and they all stayed at the La Quinta Inn, and all I had to do was to kind of go down into the breakfast room, because whether you like it or not, 
you get a free breakfast at the La Quinta Inn. So everybody, everybody <laughs> felt obliged to like, well, I'm going to have my free breakfast. I don't care how dried out those eggs are. They're pretty damn free. And, uh, uh, and this one guy who I'd been really trying to like write nice emails to and stuff and I had a couple of people write him a note. And, but I saw him standing in front of the toaster trying to get his English muffin toasted. And it was like the tyranny of the toaster. You know, there's no way you can speed it up. There's no way he could just like grab his English muffin and go. You really have to wait for the toaster. So I, You're sort of I leapt in and introduced myself. And, and we had this very cordial conversation in which he basically said he didn't want to pose for me, even like two minutes. I said, just give me two minutes. No, no, I don't want to do it. Uh, maybe next time. Of course, there <laughs> won't be a yeah. next time. But basically, after July 16th, no press person will ever get in touch with any of them again. Mm-hmm. You know, until the until the 60th, and by which time, the people doing the articles wouldn't be, won't even be able to remember where they're doing it. It's like, <laughs> so I know I, there's a reason we're supposed to be asking you this question, but I can't remember <laughs> what it is. It popped up. But it was on anyway. He he still wouldn't do it. And uh, but later on, during a group shot, I managed to get him over on the side of the of the group, and I just cropped everybody else out, and I got <laughs> my picture. It's wonderful. But it was, you know, it's like you have to do what you got to do, kind of thing, you know. The pictures I've seen the pictures that the Washington Post um, had run on Wednesday. Uh, they're mm-hmm. beautiful. They all seem to have mastered the thousand yard stare, uh, or I guess in their case, maybe it's like the thousand mile stare. Can you mm-hmm. compare the pictures of them later in life to the pictures that you took when they, well, when you were uh, in your 20s? Well, you know what's interesting is I never met any of the astronauts early on. I mean, I only saw them from like three miles or five miles away when there are these little dots on top of a Saturn V. So like everybody else, I only really knew them through either Life magazine, who had that kind of exclusive contract with the with them or through television which is how we really did it and what's really quite wonderful now is that they're both the um the fact that this uh film team went back and did a deep dive into the nasa archive and came up with the this prime beautifully shot material that nobody ever looked at for 50 years uh and the movie apollo 11 which is I think is going to be out and around, or it may be on, on cable. But it's it's unbelievable the 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 beautiful film that was shot and then basically just sat in the archives. But the genius was that they had all these uh, cinematographers out shooting in places that many places you would think nobody would even bother to go shoot, but they did it, and that's what's great. And those are the impressions I have of these people as young men. And now. I meet them when they're 88 or 90 years old, and uh, you know it was a very different. It was a very different kind of uh, meetup because now, I mean, I'm you know I'm not a kid. I'm 72, and I I see these guys as you know a ge- the generation ahead of me who are um, you know who broke so much ground. And m- when I was with photographing them all i really wanted to do was to bring back something that just doesn't play so much to uh the fact that they were these you know the young lieutenant colonels and captain in the navy and stuff and then they became these astronauts but just like what are they now they're just 
they're like dudes. They're like everybody's grandfather. They're full of <laughs> wisdom and smart, and they have, as I described it in the little piece I wrote, they have all these incredibly well earned and honestly earned lines across their faces, and that's what I was really trying to show that in a way there is this kind of everyman uh, aspect to them, but they were chosen for this this mission and they fulfilled it and they uh, you know they just made us all proud and so I I it was there is probably a little bit of uh, idol worship going on here but I love you know and what was really fun about this for me is I will I was able to write the text that went along with it and mm-hmm. I've been trying to do a little more writing to go along with my pictures because I find that in some ways that fills in the gaps that the pictures don't carry. So I, I described the three name crews. You know, all the crews for Apollo had three crew uh, crewmen. So the names would always be like Borman Anders Lovell. It was like right. it was like a law firm. Or, <laughs> and it was and they were and but Borman Anders Lovell, that was one word. Yeah. It was just it melted together and became a single word and and so much of it for me had to do with the the joy of all those law firm names that I had memorized when I was a kid, now getting to meet some of them firsthand. Your photography, a lot of photography is about access. People talk about, uh, certainly for, for sure. photojournalists, you get to go talk to presidents and astronauts. Mm-hmm. Is there something, what would you say your style is photographically? If Like if you take out the access part... How do you approach taking a picture of something? How do you are you walking around with your camera? Well, I like I like to engage people in in portraits. I tend not to be very complicated. I'm I'm usually pretty happy. Just uh, give me a little bit of window light and and a you know a tripod and a fifteenth of a second, and I could be pretty happy. But um, (laughs) I don't. I really don't like to be. Um, anything more than a fly on the wall. That for me is the best to just, you know, I had, there was a woman who worked for one of the senators in Washington. I can't remember which senator or even her name for that matter, but she was the press uh, attache for one of the, the senior senators. And she once introduced me to somebody as, oh, that's Dave Burnett. He's the guy that walks into a room and disappears. And I thought, oh my God, that's the, coolest way of ever being introduced I've ever heard and absolutely the thing I most long to be able to do. I just want to be able to be there. I'll shut my trap and you you know basically you won't know I'm there and that's that's what I would prefer. And I had like this is this year is the 40th anniversary of the revolution in Iran. Um and I had when Ayatollah Khomeini returned to Tehran, I had spent a number of days going to the little school where he was uh, uh, holding forth. And he would come and do these little sort of semi-public things where he'd come to the window in front of a plaza in the back of the school and they'd jam 5,000 people in there and they'd all go crazy. And then he'd just come and wave for a minute. Then he'd go sit down, and they'd push all those people out, and they'd bring another 5,000 people in, and half an hour later, he'd do it again. 
And I'd been outside and photographed him numerous times, numerous days from the outside, and I kept trying to get on the inside. And there was this one guy who was a kind of an un- had been picked to be the press person. He was just an economics professor, but somebody said, okay, you're in charge of the foreign press. And he didn't really know what to do, and he didn't have any information to give at a briefing. So uh, as it happened, after a day or two, people just stopped coming to his little briefings because they just didn't think they were worthwhile. I kept going, and every day I'd ask to try and get on the inside. And I don't know what happened, but about the fourth day, he... um, Instead of saying, come back tomorrow, he said, wait a moment. And he went off and he came back a few minutes later and he said, come with me. And we wandered through the basement of the ha- of the school and we went upstairs and we got to this door and he just said, can you please, do you mind taking your shoes off? Which I did in about three seconds. And the door opens and all of a sudden, instead of being in the middle of these giant noisy crowds, I'm on the other side of the window, and there's Khomeini with three or four other mullahs sitting in this little 10 by 10 room with a big window, and uh, he's just sitting there having a cup of tea. And like that was what I wanted to do. And I just, I, I grabbed my camera, I made a couple of frames, and then I slinked over to the corner that was opposite the one he was in and just slid down and tried to become completely. Uh, you know, un, unpresent. I just wanted to, maybe that should be the title of my book, Unpresent. <laughs> um, but I just, I was able to to hang in there for about 45 minutes and he came up and he went to the window again, then he came back and then he left and he came back again into the room and almost tripped on my camera bag. That would have been a major incident. incident. <laughs> um, but it was just something uh so special and those pictures have lived for 40 years you know it's it's it was a very particular kind of uh look to be on the inside instead of the outside so for me that's really what it's all about is just trying to get as close as i can and then let life go on and just and just make pictures of what's happening rather than be directing it or putting strobes up and trying to, you know, I mean, I like Mm -hmm. to do that too. But for me, the real joy is just being able to somehow find my way in and then from there not screw it up. (laughs) Do you know the moment that you got the shot? Like, do you have like the hairs rise on the back of your neck? You feel it? You've you've got that Well, you know, there's in, in, uh, with in digital, you kind of know immediately, you know, that's what, Dave Kennerly said at one point, when, about the second or third year, we were all using digital cameras, like, you know, 15 years ago. And he said, well, the one, the one advantage to digital is, you know, right away when you screwed up. And that is <laughs> totally true. I mean, you kind of, whether you know, whether you really have the picture, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know, you, you can uh, usually tell if you have something. And uh, it's changed. I think it has changed a lot the way we, the way we shoot, because in the film era, you never knew. I mean, I you know I lived and worked in Vietnam for a couple of years near the end of the Vietnam War, and we would shoot, put our film in an envelope, it would go to Saigon, it would then get put on a plane to New York, and then it had to get picked up by a motorcycle courier at the airport and taken to the city and dropped off at the lab, and the lab had to process it, and then those 
pictures would get looked at by a researcher, and then they would decide what they want to use, and they'd make a few prints. And like uh, a week later, they'd be in Time magazine. And I would never know till then if I had even made a picture or had the exposure right. It was just, there was a leap of faith which took place in the film era, which I think made us very different kinds of photographers since we didn't know. We had to really, and you couldn't shoot a thousand rolls of film. So you had to just be a little more on your game about it. And you couldn't look at the back of the camera and say, oh, I'm a... I'm a stop over. I guess I better stop down or something. Right. Um, doesn't happen. Hmm. So, David, do you have any photographs that you have hanging on your wall in your home that uh, are by other photographers that you find incredibly powerful and moving? Well, I don't actually have that much other than a whole series of Christmas card pictures of my daughter from age 2 to 25. <laughs> Um, like same Nixon. same dress, same chair, same backdrop for t- like 20 years. Oh, that is but, very much uh, like Nicholas Nixon, right? I don't have so much on my wall of my own, but I, I know one picture of Groucho Marx I do have. But oh. others, I have pictures that I've traded. And I'm actually a big believer in photographers trading prints with each other, just kind of, you know, photographer to photographer. And um, I have a couple in, in the upstairs that I really like, uh, one by Flip Shulky of Muhammad Ali uh, in a swimming pool underneath the water, a picture that ran in Life magazine, I, I think in about 1965. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Flip talked about this, how he, he, uh, he talked to Ali about the water and Ali apparently was not real big on swimming pools or water or swimming <laughs> but he realized it was a moment that he could make a great uh, you know make up some great Muhammad Ali isms which is I, I practice my punches in the water and it makes me stronger so he has this picture of Ali underwater which is really great and I have another picture by Barb Kinney who worked uh, in the Clinton White House, she was one of the official photographers at the Clinton White House, and now uh, works for uh, the Emerson Collective out in San Francisco as a staff photographer. But she made a picture that is just sensational. It, I don't even know what the event was, but it was six first ladies. It was—I um, don't think Pat Nixon's in there, but it's—it's it's Rosalind Carter. Um, Nancy Reagan. Uh, you know, Nancy Reagan, Betty Ford. Bush. Uh, God. Uh, uh, Betty Bush. Anyway, it's just, it's, it's six first ladies sitting in a booth. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful picture. And it's, that is sort of an access moment picture. Like not everybody <laughs> got to shoot that one. Yeah. But that's, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, Kenny's a great photographer. She did this great picture of the King of Jordan, King Hussein. And um, who else is in there? I think uh, Yasser Arafat and uh, the president. And they're all kind of looking at their watches. It's just before they walked out to uh, when they signed the peace accord in in whatever year that was, but in 1993, I think. Anyway, there are these little moments that pass, that, that take place out of the public view. And in the end, some of those little moments, I think, are so much the ones that photography was designed for. It just, it gives you a sense of the intimacy of a moment. Uh, you know, everything happens now in public with like 
the photo riser and all the lights and the TV, this and that, and thousands of people. I mean, look at the uh, President Trump's rallies are all kind of choreographed like that. And all the modern uh, political rallies in a presidential campaign tend to have some sense of that. Gets to be a little bit the same everywhere you go. They play the same music and, you know, the candidate walks out and everybody gets juiced. It's um, it's too bad because it's so hard. Uh, other than in Iowa and in New Hampshire, you don't really find much real stuff anymore. I mean, you can still, you know, sometimes a candidate will go into a diner in Manchester, New Hampshire. And mm-hmm. You're going to get a real moment whether you want it or not. Uh-huh. But it's... Um, Do you have pictures... On your wall that are uh, besides the ones of your daughter do you have other pictures of yours that are up anything that's particularly special? i do have one picture of the contact sheet of ayatollah khomeini when i walked in the room that one that's as a blown up contact sheet which that's is cool i that's love cool. contact sheets you know Me too. that was yeah. one of the one of the great uh, heritage links to uh film photography is the fact that you had these contact sheets where you could actually lay the film on a piece of paper expose it it's the exact size of the film it's the exact order you shot it in if you put the film down in the right order on the paper Mm -hmm. and it gives you a real um inside view of what the photographer had to deal with and what they were thinking and it's just the best i mean it's nothing is better than a contact sheet to see how something unfolded it's totally. a story behind so I, the moment. Love to see that. It's really, yeah. I mean, and the the uh, the one of uh, the Ayatollah is pretty good because you can kind of just follow the whole thing through, and and you can almost see where he trips on my camera bag too. So. <laughs> wow. The last frame, it's like, oh, I guess I better guess I better move my camera bag. Are you ever nervous? Am I ever nervous? Yeah, sure. I mean, right before, you know, so you're waiting for something, and it's like. I was like th- three weeks ago. I photographed Michael Collins from Apollo 11, and he was had come to New York. I was going to have to go to Boston and try and intercept him there, but he came to New York to tape a uh, a show that's going to be broadcast for a, a, a kind of a younger audience. But they had a live studio thing set up, like four, three or four TV cameras. And he's being interviewed by this young woman who's. Um, like a 24-year-old woman who's like a total space nut. She has her own uh, website dedicated to space studies and space travel and so forth. And and then there was he was supposed to do a piece for the Today Show, and that was going to be from like 9 to 9:30. And then they got to get him mic'd up for his thing uh, for the for the TV broadcast. And then he had to be at 10 o'clock in this thing and into the taping. And so I was going to have a few minutes after the walkthrough and before the event started. And they finally bring him in there. So I've been around for like an hour and a half, two hours. I keep have my camera set up and I keep looking through the viewfinder like, yeah, yeah, that's going to be right. It's fine. Okay. The light is changing ever change. You know, light always changes when it's natural light. But I had a a pretty good spot picked up that wasn't going to change too much. So I pretty much knew what it was. And, it just became a uh, like okay. I'm gonna. I only have so many fingernails left to chew on here. I just wish he'd show up. And then finally he came in. And I started. I have both digital and my old speed graphic uh, film camera. So I started shot a few with the Sony digital cameras. Put those down. 
shot some four by five and then went back to the digital cameras and then he was gone to the thing and I looked at the first and when I later uploaded everything I looked at the first and last frames I had them for seven minutes <laughs> and it went very quickly but I got a couple of really nice pictures and um, you know as I was writing about it this week seven I I said you know seven minutes is way better than zero minutes <laughs> so if you try not to to be too greedy about it uh you know take your seven minutes honestly to some of these astronauts i've said if you give me three minutes and i promise it won't be painful just give me three minutes and i can do this wow uh i mean less than three minutes is, is tough but um you know, and then usually once you get them, you can keep them for another five or ten. Right. It's like, hey, that's a pretty cool little camera there. Yeah, well, this came out of a reconnaissance camera from a P-51 fighter, you know, 1943. That With these guys, astronauts, I don't think any of them had ever actually flown a P-51, but they were all jet, jet, fighter, mm -hmm. jet fighter pilots, and they certainly knew what a P-51 was. And I have this beautiful old lens that had started its life uh, an aero ectarb from kodak uh, started its life in a re recon a k24 reconnaissance camera that would go in the either the bomb bay of a b17 or a, a little pod on a p51 or a p38 and they would you know like right before the normandy landings they flew all kinds of recon missions into normandy to kind of see what the germans had and this is that kind of lens and Seventy years later, it's still—it's yeah. really—it's really a trip. Yeah, beautiful. David, if you could describe your photography in one word, what would you? What word would you use? Um, well, I would hope genuine would be good. Oh yeah, I like that. Nice. Yeah, um, that's really right. I mean, every now and then, you know, we ha we everybody plays a little bit loose with the actuality of what it is and, and you know it's it, we're all living in the world of the heisenberg uncertainty principle which is the act of observation changes the nature of what it is you're looking at oh yeah and i think true uh, you, you know you show up with a camera and things will either happen or not happen partially because you're there right i'm just looking actually i just happened to click on a headline that award-winning photojournalist accused of faking photos in Honduras of assassinations. So, like, uh, that is really over the top. It's, and we're kind of genuine. living in this world where there's, you know, the uh, the challenge to everybody that works in the press is to try and be as honest as you can. And in the world of uh, where the enemy of the people is full of fake news that becomes a real challenge because we don't always get as much leeway in terms of interpreting things as maybe we would like. But like the whole notion that you would totally fake something just kind of blows me away. I can't even imagine. Hey, I mean, I did one time, I still live with with sort of the, the gods of, of photojournalism, like looking down their nose at me for this uh, one little trip I did in, you know, 40, God, 48 years ago in Vietnam when I was went with some Vietnamese troops into Laos. And 
it was a it was a big deal. They're trying to cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and it had been very hard for journalists to get in there. And I finally go in there, and I'm walking along with this one little group of Vietnamese soldiers, and this one guy is just kind of walking along with me, and I kind of he looked at me, and I kind of I, terrible to admit this in public, but you know it's 48 years ago. I guess I can own up to it, but. Uh, and I just, he was wearing a sidearm. He had a pistol in a in his holster, and I just kind of made the old motion of like tapping my belt with my hand, like, "Hey, man, you know you're supposed to be searching for the enemy troops. Shouldn't you have a gun out?" And so the guy like grabs his pistol, and now he's stalking along with his pistol. And of course, it made a slightly better picture than just walking along. And it, I think it may even have run in time, and and. I've just, I've been embarrassed by that for yeah. damn near 50 years, you know? I, I, and yet it wasn't, I wasn't, it wasn't really like playing that crazy with the truth. I mean, the guy was, you know, but, but it, that moment only happened because I had kind of intervened. But I think, you know, everybody has a moment like that. And it, it has to do, I think, with what you do for the next 48 years after that, that really counts more than that one moment. And certainly it's so, I mean, I'm sure there would be a lot of people who'd say, get over it, Burnett. It's like, <laughs> that's no, not I, a big, wasn't that big that. a deal. But it was like this little thing that just has stayed in my head. Like, uh, you know, the, the, your honesty is only as good as you can be honest with yourself. I completely understand I, I this has been a great conversation i would love to chat more thank david thank you so much for joining us it's just been fantastic to talk and my you know, pleasure it's good you guys asked some good questions i think thanks um so i have to check i'll check the tape later and make sure that that's a correct statement okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. thanks for, i appreciate being invited this is this is a lot of fun You're very it's great welcome. to talk about you know it's to take photography which is a completely visual thing and try and make words out of it sometimes is very challenging and and doesn't make much sense and then sometimes it just works our show is recorded and produced in San Francisco. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to get show notes, see photos that we've talked about, and post comments. Please leave reviews and ratings on iTunes, and don't forget to subscribe. We get new listeners from you telling your friends and spreading the word. If you know someone who might get something from us, send them a link. Thanks to Mitchell Foreman for our theme music, to David Burnett for being a wonderful guest, and to all of you for hanging out with us. We appreciate your attention and hope we've given you some things to think about. Until next time. <laughs>